Welcome to the NPH Hour on News Talk Saga 960 AM. I'm your host, Jason Tom, and this marks episode number six. And things are starting to fall into place for a radio show that is really the first of its kind, focusing solely on Canadian basketball. And right now, with competitive team basketball still in a holding pattern here in Canada due to COVID-19, we have a number of graduating seniors that have not had the chance to showcase their skills in order to earn a post-secondary scholarship in the United States, while also playing against top competition with increased exposure, which many hope would lead them to playing at the highest level in the NBA. But the truth is, the percentage of Canadian players that get the opportunity to play Division I basketball right out of high school is very small. The ones who then move on to play in the NBA are even smaller. But the opportunities that can come along that path, or the lessons learned while on that journey, more often than not will define the next chapter of that student-athlete's life. And on this show, three young men will tell their stories, all of them. Very different, yet similar in one way. They used the sport to better themselves as people and gave themselves opportunities that they otherwise would not have had. One has represented Canada on the world stage, gets paid to play the game he loves, and has been a part of Canadian basketball history here at home. Another played at a prestigious Division I school, but battled injuries and never realized the goal of playing professional basketball. Instead, he has become a doctor and will start his residency as a neurosurgeon next month. While our first guest is currently still walking his path as a student athlete, he needed to spend two years at junior colleges in the United States in order to academically qualify and play well enough to earn a Division I scholarship. Jasmine Sanga is a Brampton native from a working-class family that has supported him to achieve his dream, and now he finds himself with the support of people from multiple cities and multiple countries who he hopes to inspire every time he steps on the floor. Jasmine Sanga, Surrey, British Columbia, born, Brampton raised, but I want to start with your parents' background. How much pride do you take in the sacrifices they made to put you on the path that you're currently on today? I take a lot of pride in that. I mean, my family, uh, especially my dad, he came to the country with $20 to his name and he just grinded for everything he had. And he met my mother and it just went from there. And, and it's good. it just goes to show that hard work could take you anywhere. And I just learned that growing up from them because without hard work and waking up every day at four or 5 a.m., what my mom and dad do, I wouldn't be here because everything that I know in life, it comes from them. And the biggest thing for me is their work ethic. How lucky do you feel that you can play a sport that's considered a grind? And I get it, and it is. But at the same time, it's it's chasing your own dreams playing a sport. Is it something that they can't really comprehend because they come from such a different world of that? Well, Yes and no, because my mom grew up uh, running track. So she, she understands, um, she understands uh, sports and how it could be a, a getaway to really just get away from all your problems and just enjoy yourself and have fun. But then again, there was no opportunity in India 
And she had to just stop running track, stop doing what she loved to, to just go make money and survive and, and come to Canada for a better life, not only for her, but for, for me and my brother. So she, she, they understand the grind. But then again, I like they didn't have the luxury that I did. You know what I mean? To, to take this a little bit further and take it a lot further than what she wanted to do. And she tells me every single day that don't take it for granted because it could just be gone like this. You know, recently you committed to Texas A&M Corpus Christi, making your D1 dream a reality, but you had to go the junior college route. For those that don't know, maybe just explain junior college in the U.S. and the challenges that come with that. Junior college is... I think it's just another way to get to that to that goal. I mean, academically, if you're not doing well, you got to go junior college. Or if you don't even have enough exposure, that's for a lot of cases. Uh, you have you could go junior college and really blow up. I mean, for example, my roommate Denver Jones, he he had zero offers out of high school. He was a qualifier, went one year JUCO. He had 25 plus offers, and it just goes to show that how JUCO could make a dream come uh dreams come true but juco's a different grind it's it's not meant for everybody i mean i've seen a lot of people quit basketball when they went juco because you got to be able to not eat the best food you got to be you gonna you, you want you have to be in the gym consistently every single day otherwise like another guy is just going to take your spot there's no politics in juco there's none of that you just have to go in there and grind and and that's just really what it is that's great insight because it's got to be tough because for the junior college, you really have to be focused academically to make sure that you are eligible for D1 when you get there. If you do, you also need to win games for the program because you need your coaching staff to stay together. But then individually, you have to try to reach your own personal goals. So how hard was it to balance all of those? I mean, it was very overwhelming because you got to, it's like the best of both worlds. You got to produce on the court and then you got to produce in the classroom. And it's kind of like a business, but I think it benefits you and it, it kind of gets you ready for that next level that for D1, I feel like, because without the grades, you're not going to be able to play. But I, I learned that in high school. I didn't have the grades, but I thought I was good enough to play. But when I, when they told me I had to go Juco, it was just kind of like a, I just, it was like a shock to me. And then from then on, I just started taking academic serious. I knocked out my homework, went to practice and did what I had to do and then get extra work as well. And you got to find a way to eat within that busy, busy schedule. So I feel like it's definitely setting me up for division one. And that's why I got recruited to come be an older guy, come be a leader. So I'm looking forward to it. You know, we, we talked a lot on the show about basketball players coming out of the Peel region, the waves only getting bigger. Uh, from an Indian Canadian perspective from the Brampton area, I mean, describe the support you have received heading into your first D1 season. I've received a lot of support. I mean, it's been a very overwhelming couple of weeks um, ever since I committed. I'm getting a lot of love from people in India, kids in India, kids in, in Paris, Indian kids in Paris, Spain. And, and, and in the Peel region, every single politician, every ward, everybody in, in the whole city is just supporting me. And it feels great because I could use my platform to inspire other young Indian kids, these young Sikh Punjabi kids all across the world. Because over the last couple of days, a lot of kids have reached out over 100 just wanting, just wanting some help, some advice. And I want to be that helping hand. I want to be one of those guys that are willing to help guys and giving them advice that I never got.
Yeah, and what kind of challenges come with that as well? Because you've now you played in Florida, mm-hmm. Kansas, and now you're going. You can't get any more south than Corpus Christi, Texas, right? You're right on the Gulf of Mexico there. What type of cultural differences have you faced, kind of, in your basketball career down there? A lot of people don't look at me as a basketball player. I mean, I walk in the gym and I don't really get the respect that I deserve up until I play. So I really like. I really. It's just a story of my life where I just have to go in and, and play the game the best way I can and perform every single pickup game, every single workout and every single practice because I'm getting, I got overlooked my whole life. So I just, I just carry it with me now at this point. And then it's a lot like the food is different. Like I'm used to eating Indian food every day. So uh, coming to the States, the food is different. And and I'm not going to lie. I did receive a lot of hate and racism when I was out here in the States because there's not a lot of Indian folks out here. And I'm not used to being around a lot of different, like, non-Indian people, you know what I mean? Because my school, Louise Arbor Secondary School that I went to in Brampton was probably 80% Indian dudes. So it it was different for sure, but I I adapt real quick and and I'm enjoying it. What is it like for you to be able to get this education, play the sport you love, and then at the same time kind of see all these different cultures and perspectives of these different places that you've been able to live? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm picking up on a lot of new things, a lot of new lingo. I'm starting to enjoy a lot more foods than I did back when I was in Brampton. And and meeting people for me is really big because I, I love to meet people and I love to talk to different people. So being in Florida, I met a lot of people there. Being in Atlanta, Kansas is just, I built a lot of uh, relationships that are going to last a lifetime. So so what do you what do you miss the most about Brampton or what food are you missing the most that you can't remember the last time you had it? Ah, I'm missing that butter chicken okay. my, mom, my mom makes. So, I, for, but from a D1 perspective, when you're talking about, um, you know, Indian basketball players and even Indian Canadian, what does it mean to you now? You've already told me about all these people who have reached out, but but how do you put that on your back now where you're like, listen, I need to do all these things, not only for myself, but to be able to show the next young kid from my background, you know, they can identify now with you having seen you play on that level. I feel like back in the day, like when Pastor Baines used to play and Manu Claren, those guys, social media wasn't as big mm. as, it, as it is now. So I feel like I could do a little bit more than what they did and add on on what they did because of my platform and, my, and the social media of what it is today. So I feel like I just have to perform and work hard every single day and not take a day off because at the end of the day, I can not only inspire kids in Brampton and Surrey and Vancouver like that, but I can inspire the billion people back in India that's definitely a dream of mine to play in the NBA and, and inspire a billion people because if I could just make my way and keep grinding every single day, like why can't they? And that's just how I feel. The ball is going to stop bouncing at some point and now you're going to be able to get, you know, an academic scholarship behind you. Uh, you know, what do you want to do on that side of things? What are, you, what are you looking to kind of get yourself better both as a student along with student athletes? I just want to sharpen my mind and keep learning things. Um, I like psychology and stuff like that. I want to learn more about the mind and how we operate. Um, but just want to finish up. I got three years to play at D1, so hopefully I, I could get my master's degree and just go from there and, and you know show people back home it's possible. Not only on the basketball court, but academically too. You could do both. You know, I, I've read that that sangha is is a Sanskrit word meaning association assembly community and it sounds like you have a huge community from surrey to brampton florida kansas 
back in India, all supporting you. And I mean, really, at this point, man, you can't lose. Congratulations on the scholarship. And, uh, you know, really looking forward to everyone back here in Peel being able to hear you on the radio and then worldwide on the podcast as well. Thank you so much for having me, man. It means a lot. The NBA has long seen India as a perfect place to grow their game and have undertaken many initiatives similar to what they have done in other countries like China, Mexico, and Africa, just to name a few. But seeing a player succeed at the highest level, like NBA Hall of Famer Yao Ming of China, is something that takes things to another level. Back in 2015, Satnam Singh became the first Indian-born player to be selected in the NBA draft. That same year, Toronto-born Indian-Canadian Simbular became the first player of Indian descent to play in an NBA game with the Sacramento Kings. Recently, Principal Singh played with the G League Ignite in hopes of hearing his name called on draft night this summer. So the opportunity is there. But for now, Jasmine Senga will add his name to the list of Indian-Canadian players to reach the Division I level and put in the work needed in hopes of making his dream of playing in the NBA a reality one day. Next on the NPH Hour, we talk with a player that also went the junior college route but quickly decided he needed to change his path and return home. He played at the U Sports level, which led him to reach his goal of playing professionally. Now he tackles a new challenge, playing 3x3 basketball, which you may be surprised in hearing is now an Olympic sport. Scarborough's Adika Peter McNeely is next here on the NPH Hour on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back to the NPH Hour on News Talk Saga 960 AM. I'm your host, Jason Tong. So you just heard from Jazzman Sanga, a player that needed to improve his game and his grades in order to reach his goal of playing Division I basketball. But there are also players that can qualify academically, but have not reached the skill level or athleticism needed to play at the Division I level, which is a much higher level of basketball than many people realize. But for some, a few years at a junior college can get them ready. Maybe physically they've caught up to their American counterparts. Or simply playing day in, day out against older players have given them the edge that they needed. Or maybe it's playing under the tutelage of coaches that have coached at the next level. Other times, it's just being seen by the right person to give them the chance that they need. Or maybe it's all of those things. For others... Sometimes they need to experience the JUCO route to understand what they really need is right here at home in Canada. That's the story of Adika Peter McNeely, but as it turns out, he didn't need to make it to Division I basketball to represent his country on the international stage or play professionally or win a championship. And now, playing the role as an alternate he is starting to learn a new incarnation of the sport of basketball, which is making its Olympic debut at the upcoming games. 3x3. Yes, 3-on-3 basketball. The sport is growing in more ways than one. 
Adika Peter McNeely, senior men's national team member, current pro, who is speaking with me from Spain, where he's training with a group of guys looking to qualify for Team Canada's 3x3 team for the upcoming Olympics. Adika, I know this is your first opportunity to train for a 3x3 competition. How has this been different than any of your other basketball experiences to this point? Oh, me? Well, it's three on three. You know, you're so used to the five on five setting and having 15 guys in a training camp and going in, but having only five of us to practice. And when you go to an open court, there's only five guys and having a lot of one-on-one drills and two-on-two drills. And it kind of just changed my perspective on the, the game of basketball. Yeah, I don't think people really realize that this is going to be an Olympic sport, you know, and and it's something that's growing everywhere. And I know Canada basketball is getting on board with it. And, you know, let's go over some of these rules. You know, the games go to 21 or 10 minutes, which is pretty short, 12 second yeah. shot clock. And the big one for me when I'm watching the games, like there's no check up top. I mean, the team that's scored on, they do have to clear the three point arc but the defense doesn't get a chance to set. You can just kick it out and immediately shoot a three. And, you know, what has been the hardest one to maybe wrap your head around on or really get used to changing the way you play? I think you hit it right on. It's just that switch from offense to defense. Like from the moment you score the layup or you score a three-pointer, it's there's no checkup. There's no, I'm going to relax. It's always, it's, got to play defense right away you got to find an open man and defend him and make sure they don't get a three up so it took me a couple of days to kind of figure that out but once you get once you figure that out the other rules are a little smaller you know you get pick up on things and you have guys like steve and kyle to just kind of tell you like like do this do that or when this situation happens do this so yeah and then, you know, and then the three is a two. So that's another. Big yeah, one. that's and, another thing. <laughs> and, and I mean, the ball as well, like it's completely unique and because many of these games are played outside. Right. So, yeah. you know, maybe the ball and, and maybe, you know, the environment, how does that change things for you as well? So it's a girl's ball is a size six ball, but the weight of a men's ball. And it, it has like these weight patterns. So it's meant to play outside, more aerodynamic with the wind and everything, all the factors. So when you pick it up, you're like, it feels, feels regular, but the, the spit of it's different. You're, for me, I'm able to palm it better. It's a lot more pick and roll. It's a lot more switching on defense. Um, yeah, and it's just kind of picking your poison. Like a lot of the bad passes that might happen in five on five will be good passes on three and three because mm. there's more spacing. So it's a little bit of adjustment on that aspect. Now, has this experience brought you back to your roots a little bit? Does it matter the ball? Does it matter the court? You know, does it matter the rules? It's just like being back home in Scarborough, just out there competing and hooping? For sure. Once you have a basketball and a hoop, man, it doesn't matter if it's one-on-one or five-on-five. Any combination in between, it's basketball. So once you have a foundation of it, you're going to figure it out. Yeah, but like you know, b- back home, if you don't check out, if you don't check up top, I mean, that, that results. Oh yeah. In- <laughs> that, yeah. That's going to be something. If you don't check it up top, it, it's not, it's not valid until you check it up top. So now let's start, talk about Scarborough a little bit, right? So it doesn't matter if it's D one Juco, U sports, overseas pros, you know, what are the characteristics of a Scarborough baller? Uh, gritty, you know, always coming with your A game, no matter where it is and who's in the gym is always bringing your A game because you're going to hear it. 
there's going to be people saying like, you're not good enough and then you have to prove someone wrong and it's just like well that guy's in the gym today what are you going to do against him so it's always that constant I have to prove myself the gritty like this is my name and I have to make my name and just show out Let's talk about the McNeely family name because it's synonymous with basketball here in Canada in a lot of ways. I, you know, have a number of times I've talked to a number of your family members trying to really just figure out that family tree. Can you take me through it as best you can of the coaches, the players, cousins, brothers, everything? Oh, man. Um, it's a long, long list. I don't even know the whole list, but I would say my dad... My dad came over from Trinidad and he played for Jarvis Collegiate way back in the day. His brother, my uncle, Uncle Chris, he played at York University for a bit. And then he had a son, Ryan McNeely. He also played at um he played at Ryerson. Then my brothers, I have Jay McNeely, Jamie McNeely, and my nephew now, Cassius McNeely. He just committed. Um and I about there's there's so many. I'm gonna be missing a lot. There's a lot more that played. I just don't know the school probably, but I know for sure there's at least five or six more basketball athletes. So you coming out of high school, you went the junior college route and what went into that decision? And yeah. then the reason to come back to you sports after the one year I asked, because, you know, there is just a lot of players out there kind of facing that same decision right now. And I know everyone has a different path, but what was yours? Uh, I was like every kid. I wanted to go Division One. I. I wasn't highly recruited coming out of high school, and I felt like I could play at that level. So I just kind of took a risk and let me just go junior college and see if I could make it that way. You know, I already qualified academically. I just didn't get the look. So my whole mindset was going there for one year and trying to play and ball out and end some end up somewhere. Um, and then after the year, it didn't go as expected. You know, I didn't really want to go back to junior college. And I was always in a good contact with Roy Rana. And he's like, you know, like, you can come home. And I'm like, all right, I just made a decision to come back to Ryerson. It was probably one of the best decisions I ever made. So why was that a great decision? What are the differences between the junior college and U sports kind of opportunities that are there? Because I think a lot of people just say, okay, well, you, you know, the juke goes a grind. Well, I can grind it out. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily all about that. It's situation. It's about amount of time you can actually spend in the gym and, and everything. And then meanwhile, here at U Sports, there's maybe opportunities that people don't fully understand. Yeah, for me, I just felt like the U Sports kind of suited my game more. I just kind of been real with myself. I'm like, I wasn't the most athletic, you know. I'm like, okay, I know Division One. They're looking for athletes. And from there, they're going to look at the skill set. And I'm like, okay, like, where do I want to see myself? I want to be part of a winning culture. You know, I want to be close to home. I know most of the guys on the team, and I just felt like going back to Ryerson, it would just fit my skill set more, and I think that I would be a better player down the line. And I think that was a good decision. And returning home also allowed you to be involved in the national program, and you're one of over 30 players that were able to represent Canada through the FIBA qualifying window. You know, the last chance to qualify for the Olympics comes this summer in Victoria. I know you'll be watching. What would it mean, you know, to you and all the guys that were involved in this path to this point uh, to watch Canada get out there and try to book a ticket to the Olympics on the men's side? It would mean a lot. I mean, everyone watches Olympic basketball and just seeing a the ABC Canada in the Olympics, I mean, a lot. Like, and for us, playing in the windows and getting the guys, whoever it is on that team to get there, it would mean a lot. Like, 
like who wouldn't want to see Canada basketball at the Olympics with all the players in NBA now and high levels overseas get to play and hopefully get a medal. Another thing that's happened here in Canada that that didn't didn't exist when you headed down south to junior college is the CEBL, and you were involved right from the inaugural season with the Edmonton Stingers. Now you're a part of a championship team, that same Stingers squad. How special was that and the fact that you were coached by another Roy Rana disciple in Jermaine yeah. Small? And I've known Coach Smalls for a very long time. Even when I was in high school, I've known Coach Smalls. Like he was recruiting me to come to Ryerson, so my relationship goes way beyond basketball. So, I mean, from Ryerson, him coaching me at Ryerson, training me in the summers, doing all the basketball camps together. And then when he made that call and he's like, you know, like Edmonton Stingers, I'm like, well, let's do it. Like, it's a first time league. I didn't really know much of it, but I was like, why not? Like, I'm going to come home and train in a week while I can actually train, practice and playing games. So, and then and it took off and we have a great team with Edmonton. We brought most of our guys back and then, our goal in the bubble is to win and we ultimately won. And now it's like, okay, like how do we repeat that? And that wasn't the only first chance for you to play pro. You played pro in Germany and, and Jamie had played there as well. You know, what does it mean to be able to go into this new country, but have somebody to lean on that has done there, done that before and, and has been able to kind of show you the ropes to an extent? I mean, it's a lot. I mean, you, you teach us so much, like, it's easy, it's easy to lean on my brother and like, okay, like, what did you do in this situation? What do you do in that situation? But I think the benefit with having my brother, Jamie, was like, he would tell me some stuff, but he didn't tell me everything. He didn't give me the whole, the whole booklet. Like, okay, this is what you're going to do for every situation. He kind of gave me an outline. Like, this is what to expect, but you got to go out there and be a man and be a pro and find your own path. Just like when you're growing up, right? When you had the older brother yeah. beating up on you on the. <laughs> yeah, he for sure did that all the time. He, he for sure did that all the time. He always beat up on me one-on-one. -on -one. He would just try and beat me all the time. And that's all my brothers. Yeah, I was the youngest one, so I got it all. And in Canada now, that's what we're seeing. There's so many siblings. The younger brothers are coming up now. You know, what kind of advantage did you have or do younger brothers have in general when they have older brothers that have played professionally and kind of went down that path? Of course, they're not going to give you the booklet, but at the same time, it does give you an advantage, doesn't it? Oh, I think it does. I mean, it's just the inside of everything and being around that environment. I remember when I was young with my older brother, Jay, he was coaching at Centennial and I would just go to the practice and I was probably like grade three, grade four, but I was able to just watch in a practice of guys older than me. And then when Jamie got older, seeing practices, I remember going and watching him play when he was at University of New Orleans. And then when he was a grad assistant at Marquette and just going down there and seeing those guys' worth ethic. I remember watching Jimmy Butler for the first time before anyone knew Jimmy Butler. Yeah. And I'm like, man, this guy's going to be special. And I remember coming back from a summer, and I was telling my best friend, I'm like, just remember the name Jimmy Butler. Just remember the name Jimmy Butler. Like, this guy's going to be amazing. And then look at Jimmy Butler now. So I think all those little things, just kind of seeing the worth ethic and the time you have to put in to be, like, the best basketball player you possibly can, just made me want to get that much better and work that much harder. Adika Peter McNeely from Spain. Thanks for taking the time on the NPH Hour, man. No, thank you very much. So after training camp in Spain, Adika is returning here to Canada to get ready to help the Edmonton Stingers defend their CEBL championship. While the veteran 3x3 team of Steve Sir, Kyle Landry, 
Jordan Jensen White and Alex Johnson will stay in Europe for the final Olympic qualifier, which runs May 26th to 30th. Three-on-three basketball is here to stay, and it creates just another opportunity for Canadian players to gain life experiences through this sport. And next on the NPH Hour, we have a young man that exemplifies the saying, use the game, don't let the game use you. And he made the most of the opportunity that this sport gave him. A former Mr. Basketball Canada, who now goes by the name Dr. Julian Clark. You have to hear his story. And it's coming up next here on the NPH Hour on News Talk. Saga 960 AM. You are listening to the NPH Hour on News Talk Saga 960 AM. I'm your host, Jason Tom. So far on this show, we have heard from two players making the most of their current opportunities on the floor. One in post-secondary, another playing professionally, but too often within the basketball community, the question is asked, hey, whatever happened to... And that is why I wanted to reconnect with a player from my past, Julian Clark, whose father competed for Canada at the 1988 Olympics and is a longtime teacher and basketball coach in Toronto. Julian's younger brother, Brody, had a decorated U sports career and has played professionally both in Germany and here in the CEBL. But I always kept up with Julian through social media because his NCAA career did not pan out as many expected but it made his story that much more important to share with all of our listeners. Ten years ago, I was doing a TV feature at the Score Television Network about Mr. Basketball Canada, Julian Clark. He had just won an OFSA championship, was heading to Steve Nash's alma mater of Santa Clara University. Now, a decade later, I'm talking to that same Julian Clark, and he's about to head to the Washington School of Medicine University in St. Louis, to collect something a little bigger than basketball. Isn't that right, Julian? It is. So uh, I am next week actually graduating from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis uh, with a dual MD and master's degree. Um, And then I will be going from there to University of Washington in Seattle. So a lot of Washingtons. I'll be going to University of Washington and starting my um, neurosurgery residency at the end of June. What type of energy commitment has that been for you? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, you know, I'm becoming a doctor, but like, take me through, you know, what, what that really entails. In terms of what sort of energy I had to bring to that, um, it was definitely day in, day out focus. Um, I'll say that it was very, very different than being a student athlete because I had more time that was actually my own. Um, You know, a lot of times as a student athlete, you are told where you have to be and what you have to do. And you get really, really good at doing that. And then you find your own time to study and work on your game, et cetera, outside of that. But when I got to medical school, it was like, wow, I actually have all this free time. What am I going to do with it? Um, when am I going to study? When am I going to focus on career development? And so the research thing was part of focusing on career development, but as a result, uh, yeah, it was a long six years in St. Louis. So what you're saying to me is actually being a student athlete, like it came with different challenges. Cause I don't think people understand what being a student athlete involves. And here you are to become a brain surgeon and actually saying that 
you know, maybe it was a different challenge, but being a student athlete was as challenging. Yeah, uh, I would say that being a student athlete was probably more challenging physically. Um, and I think you, one thing that I've actually taken from that, that was really, really helpful on rotations in neurosurgery, for example, um, is the ability to function when you're tired mm. because you, like when I was in undergrad at Santa Clara, like I had morning lift and then class and then practice and then lab. And then I had to study and then I had to shoot and it's like, okay, well, like you have all of these things that are penciled into your schedule that you have to do. You don't really have a choice. Um, and I wasn't the kind of person that didn't go to class. So sometimes mm -hmm. there's a choice, but you know, a lot of times for me, there wasn't because I knew that I wanted to go to medical school. And so I had to do well in school. Um, and so transitioning over to a, a situation where you're a professional school. So you're, you're an adult and you're given license to show up when you need to show up and learn how you need to learn. Um, trying to navigate that new process from like an organizational standpoint was very, very different. I would say that was easier because my time was my own. Um, but still it, it's the same thing as you're just, you're trying to function tired all the time. And I think being a student athlete helped with that. So, you know, when you went off to Santa Clara, you know, you were coming off a high here championship at OFSA. You then go down to Santa Clara. You sustain an injury very early in your freshman season. You're in a walking boot. Uh, you know, what What happened in that first year? And, and when did you really say, okay, well, like I'm here. I'm not going to be able to play that much. You know, I'm going to shift my focus a little bit, you know, to in class. Um, I originally sprained my ankle really badly actually in the all Canada classic all-star game that summer. I remember it. Uh, and then kind of never really recovered from it because then I played for the junior national team mm. um, and was very intent on playing through the injury that summer. Um, and I think I rolled it again against Uruguay, but ended up coming back and being able to participate in more full force, like later in the tournament against, USA, Argentina, we ended up coming in uh, third, we got a bronze medal. So it was worth it. Mm. Um, and then I had a couple weeks off before I went to Santa Clara. And then I sprained it again, late summer uh, in, a, in an ankle brace. It was just weak at that point. And then I did it again a fourth time in like October of that year, late October. Um, and so it was just one of those things that just it never got better because I kept playing on it. I think that was probably I mean, I was already thinking when I came to Santa Clara that I was going to play basketball until I couldn't play basketball anymore. And then I was going to go be a doctor. Um, but the timeline kind of got pushed up when I realized that all it took was uh, one serious injury to really change the entire trajectory of my basketball career. Tell me about returning to the university of Toronto, your final year of basketball happens in your hometown. You're, playing great on the floor and then you know what was happening off the court setting you up for for what you wanted to do in the future it was nice I got to play in front of my family um which I hadn't really got to do for the the four years before that mm -hmm. um I got to play well which I think was nice because I decided that was going to be my last year of, of basketball and got to go out kind of on my own terms rather than deciding like I wasn't playing as much as I wanted to play and, mm. and wasn't experiencing the, the competitive thrill on the court that I wanted to. Um, but at the same time, I was doing medical school interviews and figuring out what was coming next. And so 
when I got into medical school at the end of that year, it just kind of felt like everything fell into place. I got to go home and spend a full year with my family. Um, I got to play in the OUA, which definitely was a better league then than it was when I came out of high school. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, very different basketball than the NCAA, which I enjoyed. It's faster paced and higher scoring. So I had a really, really good time. And then I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm very content with this. And now I have a, another very, very long road ahead of me. And I'm basically starting from the beginning. So uh, let's get after it. Yeah. I mean, on that point, exactly what you're saying. Like, so you finish, you know, five years of schooling, but it's like, now you're undertaking even more than what you just did. How did everything to that point, being a student athlete, playing the sport of basketball, get you ready for what you were going to be taking on in this next challenge? So I would say there were two major things. Uh, the first one is that when you are a high level athlete for long enough, you have for the most part, you have no choice but to learn how to take instruction and be coachable. Um, and that's really important uh, for those who are listening and who are younger. That's really important for any career uh, after sport. You're not always going to walk in to be the boss. And so you have to learn how to be comfortable taking constructive criticism. You have to find a way to be useful in a team environment. And you have to learn how to uh, be coachable. And so all of those things were things that like when I, when I went to medical school and especially when I got to clinical rotations and residents and attendings are trying to teach me, but also tell me what to do and give me instruction and give me feedback. Um, there's not, you know, sometimes people have a sense of entitlement about what they're being told to do. And they feel like that's maybe below them when you're just told what to do and you just know how to accept that and make the most out of it. Uh, that makes your life a whole lot easier. And that's definitely something that I took from being a student athlete. It's like, I don't really want to run this, th this 33 right now, but somebody messed up and we're all going to run together and you just suck it up and you do it because you're part of a team. Um, so that was the first big thing. And then I think the second one, more specifically to neurosurgery um, is that it is a skill. Surgery is a skill. And in order to be good at your skill, you have to refine your craft. And it's not just when you're on the court with other people or in the OR with other people that you're refining your craft. Um, you're doing what you have to do for yourself behind closed doors. You know, when you're a shooter, like I was, you get in the gym, you shoot 500 in the morning, you shoot 500 at night. Nobody needs to be with you. You're just doing it because you want to get better at it. And with neurosurgery, it's the same thing. You're t I'm tying knots at my desk or I'm doing neuroanatomy whenever I need to, or I'm spinning a needle driver in my hand when I'm studying. Like there's all these little things that will carry over. And then when I get to residency, I'll have opportunity to go to like a skull base lab and do dissections with anatomy and do other things outside of the operating room that will make my craft better. Um, you know, so like the idea of like repetition and refinement is something that I take from basketball and is never going to leave me. That is amazing to hear. Uh, and something that I'm sure people haven't thought of before, but, you know, being at Santa Clara, obviously a high academic institution and through all the contacts you've made, you know, where have you seen other athletes or former student athletes that have now 
uh, applied it outside. Like you must have come across a number of people that are now succeeding after playing, maybe not basketball, but a sport that they love and using kind of maybe that team aspect and everything you just mentioned to apply to after their career. Yeah. I mean, actually just being at Wash U, I had classmates who were athletes in other disciplines um, who did very well. I've met a lot of athletes uh, in surgical specialties. And then outside of that, uh, I mean, Brayden Anderson comes to mind as somebody who yeah. did really, really well from a student athlete perspective and is now in New York as a lawyer. Um, you know, I think there's just, there's a lot of, like my mentor at Wash U, Dr. Greg Zippel, he's the chair of neurosurgery there. So he sees a lot of applications every year and he's also been around the block and seen uh, people who are successful and people who are not. Um, and there's a very, very strong correlation. And there's a lot of evidence behind the fact that people who play team sports when they're younger are more successful after they are done with athletics um, because they are able to work in a team environment and be with people. And, you know, something that like is probably not talked about as much as it should have is it's rare for someone to like all of their teammates all the time, mm. you know, but when it comes to having a successful team in sport, you have to deal with the fact that you maybe don't like your teammates all the time, or you maybe don't like your coaches all the time. And there are a lot of different personalities and egos, and it doesn't matter because you come together for a collective purpose and that is to win. And so if you can take that attitude and apply it to your profession, then yeah, you might not like all of your co-residents or your co-workers or your colleagues or your, you know, whatever, but for something like neurosurgery, the collective goal is to treat a patient successfully neurosurgically, whether or not you like the attending you're working with or the resident that you're working with. And if you can swallow that and focus on the goal, um, you're gonna be much better and everybody else is gonna be much better for it too. And I think that applies to a lot of other professions and you get that from team sport. Amazing insight. And, you know, I really look at it like you're entering the NBA now, but not in the sport, right? Because, you know, your work is not done. This is just, you, you just got drafted. You're just getting started. So what's ahead of you in Seattle? How many more years? And, and, and you know, what do you have to look forward to now? I guess you're going to be right in the thick of it. Yeah. Um, I, so neurosurgery residency is seven years. Wow. So I'm 28, so I'll be 35 uh, before I am done with training. I'm at the very beginning. Like I remember talking to one of the attendings at the University of Washington that I had a really, really strong relationship with during the interview trail. And he was like, look, man, it's, it's awesome that you're wanted. Um, but keep in mind that the number one draft pick is still a rookie when everything gets started. Wow. You know what I mean? Like I'm really going to be back at the lowest, lowest point of the totem pole and working my way up all over again for the next decade. To go back to Steve Nash, when he went to the NBA hall of fame, he said, play the long game. And that's, uh, that's exactly what you're doing. Any last things that you, that you want to say to that young kid coming up, playing the sport about, you know, using the sport, not letting the sport use you. I remember hearing that so much growing up and I didn't know what it meant. Um, I, for me, it was the fact that basketball was a passion, but recognizing that it wasn't my only passion. Um, 
And, you know, when you realize that you, if, if basketball is the only thing you want to do and you can't see yourself doing anything else, play. You know what I mean? Like, it's good for you. It's healthy. Play. But if you're playing and while you're playing, there's like a light bulb goes off in your mind or somebody else, like, I could be doing that too. Then you start thinking about how you use your connections from basketball to put yourself in a position to do the next thing. And as long as you can do that, I think it's sometimes hard. Something that Steve Nash also said was that athletes die twice. Um, and I think that he, that was like in a Players' Tribune article when he retired. And I think that's very true. I think you have to sometimes swallow the fact that, uh, you know, I still feel like an athlete. I still do a ton of physical activity. I still play. I still lift, whatever. But I'm not competing anymore. So I'm missing that aspect of sport. Mm -hmm. And so, but I found something else that I can compete with myself in. You know, and so it's like you have to recognize that, like, as an athlete, your athletic career is eventually going to die. And if you are prepared for what comes next, then it's easier to, to cushion that blow a little bit. Dr. Julian Clark, thank you so much for the time, man, and, and good luck the rest of the way. Uh, I can't wait to continue to, to stay up to date with everything you're doing and saving lives, man. It's way more important than a sport. Thank you. It was great to touch base with you, man. It's been a decade. It's crazy. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That's exciting. I'm excited to uh, see how everything goes with NPH moving forward, and we'll, we'll for sure be in touch. So I can't find any official statistics about former Canadian basketball players that went Division One and became a doctor, but I'm going to guess Dr. Julian Clark is one of one. But even if I'm wrong, his story is so special and so important. In a year where a number of student-athletes have had the game taken away at a crucial point in their career, you have to remember there's hope. There's a path for you to take, and the skills you have learned from the game of basketball can help you along the way. The relationships you've made can open doors you didn't even know were there. This should be a wake-up call for everyone that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% about how you react to it. Having a plan B doesn't mean you give up on plan A. Hey, you may have to end up going with plan C or D, but the important thing is have a plan. Because if you don't, there's no one to blame but yourself. You can find out more about what we do at NorthPoleHoops.com or on Instagram and YouTube at NorthPoleHoops. You can see all of our interviews there. Let us know what you want to hear about here on the NPH Hour. Until next week, I'm your host, Jason Tom, reminding you to stay ready because basketball and a return to the court is right around the corner. This has been the NPH Hour on Newstock Saga, 960 AM.